Hello, I'm Seyfeddin Amos. Welcome to the Bitcoin Standard Podcast, bringing you seminars from seyfeddin.com, my online learning and publishing platform, where you can be the first to read my work and take my online courses on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Members can read the draft of my next book, The Fiat Standard, in full, and also receive chapters from my forthcoming textbook, Principles of Economics, as they are written. By joining seyfeddin.com, you can also join our regular seminars, which you hear on this podcast. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you thanks to our sponsors. Nidig, built for Bitcoin. Nidig is a full-service financial services firm dedicated to Bitcoin, applying institutional wisdom and ingenuity to offer the full suite of financial solutions needed for institutions to access Bitcoin, from custody, execution, financing, treasury solutions, integration partnerships, and more. Nidig's team brings decades of experience in the financial industry and passion for sound money to building the Bitcoin standard. I have been working with Nidig for more than two years and I'm very impressed with the vision, focus, and dedication they have brought to the institutional adoption of Bitcoin. Find out more on Nidig.com. CypherSafe. For backing up your Bitcoins, I recommend using the products of CypherSafe. The Cypher wheel is a gorgeous and brilliant sturdy piece of low-time preference engineering from a fourth-generation machine shop in Maine. Bitcoin is bringing hard money back and our friends at CypherSafe are giving Bitcoin the low-time preference machines it deserves from the golden age of design. CypherSafe have now also come up with a low-cost reliable new product, the Cypher Grid, which is made of two fireproof, rust-proof, and waterproof stainless steel plates, which can be locked together with a padlock and a tamper-evidence seal to ensure privacy. The Cypher Grid's two plates are enough for storing 24 words and it comes with the center punch you need, all for $59. Coinbits. Coinbits is a great way to introduce your pre-coiner friends and family to Bitcoin. Get them set up in under a minute and help kickstart their journey by turning everyday spare change into Bitcoin. This Bitcoin-only app takes the uncertainty and fear out of Bitcoin saving by rounding up debit and credit card purchases to the nearest dollar, then using the difference to buy Bitcoin. Set it, forget it, and let the app automatically tax your high-time preference spending by saving the hardest money ever. Want to save in Bitcoin faster? Customers can multiply their roundups up to 10x or adjust their savings frequency for weekly or daily Bitcoin stacking. Coinbits is built on a sound, tried-and-true dollar-cost averaging strategy that turns Bitcoin's volatility in your favor. Once you've gotten a private wallet set up, Coinbits encourages you to withdraw your Bitcoin to your own private wallet and embrace the Bitcoin standard way of life. Start stacking on coinbitsapp.com and save your time and energy in the soundest money ever. Noddles. As discussed in the Bitcoin standard, Bitcoin is controlled by the nodes that operate its software. It is only through consensus between nodes that the Bitcoin blockchain continues to live, and it is only by running a Bitcoin node that you are part of this consensus and can verify the validity of the transactions you receive and the ownership of your coins. Whenever anyone asks me what are the most important warning signs that something is wrong with Bitcoin, I always answer the following. If the number of Bitcoin nodes is declining and or the cost of running nodes is rising significantly. I believe it is really important to run a node but I don't recommend running it on your own work or personal computer as it can compromise the performance of your computer and more importantly, the security and privacy of your Bitcoin node. A far better solution is to buy a dedicated hardware node and for that, I highly recommend Noddle. Manage all your Bitcoin activity, such as Lightning or BTC Pay Server, and isolate them from your personal computer by putting them into one dedicated device that is always running and does one thing only, Bitcoin. Become a first-class citizen of Bitcoin by running your own Noddle node available at noddle.it. Cold card. 
My hardware wallet of choice is the cold card. I strongly recommend only conducting Bitcoin trades on computers that are dedicated to Bitcoin and cannot connect to the internet. I like the cold card because it is a contained machine optimized for Bitcoin and Bitcoin only. Cold card is basically a small computer that can only do Bitcoin, which makes securing it more straightforward. Use the code Bitcoin standard on coldcardwallet.com to get a 5% discount. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast Seminar. Hey, Safe. I just posted a question in the chat and I would highly appreciate to know um, what your thoughts are on this topic. Yeah. Speaking to concerns with coin tracking by a Bitcoin public ledger, how important is fungibility for a good money? Do you think this could be an attack factor against Bitcoin in the long term? I understand that this gets better with Taproot and Fregout. However, what happens if government exchanges refuse to adopt these changes in the short term and use white blacklists in the medium long term to co-opt the censorship resistance in Bitcoin? Thoughts? Can you think through an outcome where Bitcoin succeeds, but fungibility is completely broken and this leads to censorship on the chain itself? How would that play out? I, I think I have a slightly unpopular opinion in Bitcoin circles. I'm not sure if we discussed it before in this uh, podcast. I think we discussed it in the seminar, but before we had the podcast. And that opinion is that basically fungibility is a nice to have, but it's not a must. Um, I can see Bitcoin succeeding with eventually every single um, address ownership being public. I, I, I don't think that this is uh, impossible. I think the other thing is there's no, there's no, censored Bitcoin. There's no way in which Bitcoin succeeds and becomes censorable. So either, you know, either it breaks down or if it works, it works uncensored. There's no middle ground here. But the interesting thing is, um, I think inevitably, I think privacy on chain is a losing battle with Bitcoin. Um, and I think it, it's a losing battle with any other uh, cryptocurrency, you know, stuff like any uh, other crypto can fix it. Because ultimately, there's a, if you're running a blockchain, you're going to be running a distributed system. So the distributed system, in order for it to function, it's going to be have to have uh, a limit on how many transactions are distributed. Like this, I discussed this in the Bitcoin standard. There's no way that a system of 10,000 computers having to agree every 10 minutes on a record of transactions is going to be able to process as many transactions as a system of one centralized computer. Because one centralized computer can essentially do infinite transactions, will do 15,000 a second, um, because it's just a computer and it's running on its own. But if you have to coordinate with 10,000 other computers each step of the way, you're going to be much slower. So there's no chance that we're going to have all of the world's transactions running on chain. It's always going to be limited. But demand for uh, holding Bitcoin is far, far, far higher than demand for uh, transacting Bitcoin on chain. So people will, and I think the last few years proved this indisputably, people will very gladly pay to hold Bitcoin with custodians. Uh, a lot of Bitcoins are held by custodians and third parties. Um, so, and, and, you know, Bitcoin is permissionless. You can't stop people from buying Bitcoin for other people. You, know? um, you can't stop people from buying Bitcoin uh, 
and keeping it in custody. And also, you can't stop custodians from buying Bitcoin and selling IOUs to it. Um, and they don't really affect Bitcoin. So, you know, you could, you know, Coinbase could go out of business tomorrow or Coinbase could turn out to be a Ponzi scheme, for instance. I, mean, I don't mean to pick on Coinbase, but I'm just saying, as you know, any particular Bitcoin exchange could turn out to be a Ponzi and they could run away with the money. That doesn't hurt Bitcoin. It hurts people who trusted them. But um, I think what's inevitably going to happen as the demand for Bitcoin increases, we're going to get more and more second layer solutions. And then on-chain entities where will inevitably become more and more de-anonymized because on-chain transactions will become settlement transactions. And so uh, it'll be more and more like public companies. So it'll be on-chain will be preserved for you know, Fidelity and Coinbase and Nidig and um, OKCoin and all these uh, big Bitcoin banks transacting with one another. And then on their own second layers, uh, they are, that's where uh, individual transactions come along. And that's where anonymity can be baked in. And so, for instance, uh, one particular exchange might allow people anonymity on their transactions. And of course, Lightning, uh, Lightning is the better example. Here. Lightning will allow, uh, you know, you'll be able to conduct your Lightning transactions with anonymity between you and your Lightning uh, nodes and your Lightning peers. But, um, you know, most likely you'll be using, say, a second layer solution based on Lightning. But the on-chain transactions of your Lightning node, which is basically your bank, they're likely going to become more and more de-anonymized over time. So I think, uh, you know, think about it this way. Um, transaction fees are just going to rise and demand for Bitcoin is going to rise. So imagine Bitcoin is at $1 million a coin. We still only have about half a million transactions a day. So we're going to be needing a lot more transactions. We're going to be needing a lot more transaction fees in that kind of world. And um, most likely what ends up happening in that world is, you know, individuals are priced out of using the blockchain. So, yeah, you can, you can pay transaction fees if you want to. Um, but, you know, you're, it's a little bit like uh, you're running your uh, sailboat through the Suez Canal. You can do it, but very few people sail through the Suez Canal because it's very scarce, it's very expensive, and you're competing with giant uh, shipping uh, boats that carry tens of millions of dollars worth of economic goods. So on the one hand, you know, it's you and your family looking to go from the Red Sea to the Dead Sea, to the uh, Mediterranean Sea on your summer vacation. How much are you willing to pay for that to go through the Suez Canal rather than just taking an airplane um, versus, you know, you are going to be taking a few minutes of um, the use of the canal. So you'll pay for it. And how much are you willing to pay versus um, the shipping companies that are moving $20 million worth of cars and electronics from Asia to Europe through the Suez Canal? You know, they're likely going to outbid you. Um, so I, I would imagine just, just like the Suez Canal doesn't witness a lot of uh, hobbyists and just like you don't see a lot of um, individuals commuting through to work through the Suez Canal, I don't think we'll see a lot of individual transactions on uh, Bitcoin in a, uh, in a Bitcoin standard. So I think 
I'm I'm okay with that world because I think it's it's um, you know I don't get angry at things that I can't control, <laughs> and um, because I think it still doesn't undermine uh, Bitcoin's uh, operation because, um, in fact, I think this is perhaps um, this is perhaps a feature of how Bitcoin operates as we move to a world of you know think about it this way. Imagine if all of the transactions of the world's major financial institutions and the world's central banks were out in public. Wouldn't that be a good thing? I think it would be a good thing because all of those institutions are answerable to the public. You know, they all have um, all these all these large institutions. They have other people's money, and so would you be happier to have? Uh, look at your local central bank's balance sheet. I think in a free market for central banks, central banks would compete by offering their clients full visibility of their books. You know, this is how much money we have. This is how much money you have. Here's where we're storing it. And this is how much money we settled this day with that bank and this bank. And then if everything is out in the open, anyone can audit it. I think that's uh, very good for uh, you know, for for their accountability and for their inability to uh, do play stupid fiat games. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think it's a bad thing. Uh, I don't think the anonymity of gold is necessarily uh, necessarily a good thing. I think uh, I don't think gold was money because it was anonymous. I think gold was money because it was hard. Um, it had a high stock to flow ratio. So. I think Bitcoin without anonymity is, is is still great because it's still hard money. And I think, um, you know, given the difficulty of closing it down and given the fact, this is the key thing that I keep going back to in the fiat standard, <clears throat> given the fact that um, you can always clear, settle and clear gold, uh, sorry, Bitcoin internationally without resort to um government um, clearance mechanisms without needing to resort to government airports, government courts, government uh, parliament, government regulatory agencies, government central banks. You don't need any of that stuff for Bitcoin. That's what um, makes Bitcoin survive. I guess what, here's how to think of it. If Bitcoin continues to grow and it's not attacked, it will grow and it will likely become more de-anonymized. If they try to crack down on it, then they're going to prevent it from growing into the global uh, base layer for the uh, white market uh, monetary system. But it will still function successfully with a lot of number go up technology for those who use it anonymously or semi-anonymously, black market and gray market. So you'll still continue to have a Bitcoin market and you'll still have the price go up because the demand because the supply is dropping every four years. So think about it this way. Uh, like the anonymity is possible and useful if Bitcoin is under attack. And so if it is under attack, the anonymity will allow it to survive and will allow it to continue. And if it's not under attack, then eventually if the attack dies, if the attackers give up or if the attackers go broke and the Bitcoiners buy them, and buy their children in slave uh, markets, then <laughs> the attack stops and Bitcoin stops being anonymous because it becomes the white market. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, 
you can't beat Bitcoin. Uh, you know, it'll it's 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 like with the difficulty adjustment. Bitcoin adjusts to be what it needs to be in order to survive. And so, uh, I think Bitcoin gives us privacy not because it allows us uh, to have privacy on chain. I think Bitcoin gives us privacy because it bankrupts all the crazy intelligence agencies and government monopolies that go after people. You know, there was no financial surveillance under the gold standard. And Switzerland was the last country that had financial secrecy because it was the last country that um, was on the gold standard. When gold is money, government doesn't have the ability to engage in such retarded bullshit. They, there was no war on drugs. There was no war on... Um, all kinds of stupid bullshit that we take for granted today. I mean, just think, governments that try this kind of stupid bullshit are going to lose money to governments that don't. Um, having said that, I will say this. Um, I think perhaps the market does want free market surveillance, but perhaps there will be things like that. And I think such things can happen in a perfectly normal, peaceful, and free market way where everybody is happy. So, for instance... You can imagine that in a place uh, like, say, a Muslim country, um, people will just not want to uh, deal with um, the financial institutions that deal with, um, say, uh, gambling websites or uh, alcohol or pornography or whatever. Uh, and you can imagine many such scenarios in many religions and cultures. And yeah, you can see a world in which, um, you know, you get to audit your financial institution and you get to see its settlements and you get to see that it doesn't deal with, that, that for instance, your bank doesn't, um, you know, it announces that it doesn't take accounts for anybody who is uh, in uh, online gambling and that it only deals with other banks that don't deal with online gambling. So, you know, you can see these kind of things entered into voluntarily where people who don't want to get into online gambling they all use Bitcoin banks that don't use online gambling. And people who want to gamble, they use online banks that have gambling. And you can see how these things would be perfectly peaceful. You know, um, you, you sign up to this bank, you agree that you're not going to ever spend any money on gambling. And if you don't want to do it, you know, if, if you don't want them to tell you what to do, you can just go to the other bank that allows you to do the gambling. But with this bank... You don't. And I can see this developing and I can see it, you know, um, and I can see it being a much more effective way of fighting crime and fighting illegal and uh, criminal behavior than government centralized control, because this would be distributed and it emerges out of the free market. You as a bank, you know, you don't want to be involved with um, child pornography. And so you're very careful about disassociating with anybody who might be uh, into child pornography. And I think, you know, um, a lot of Bitcoiners tend to think in terms of, you know, financial inclusion means everybody gets to run the money that they want and do the transactions that they want. But I think financial freedom also means financial exclusion, meaning that, yeah, you want to live in a world in which you don't support in any way people who engage in behavior that you don't like. And I think, uh, you know, in the case of gambling and alcohol and such things, you'll end up with a peaceful, uh, peaceful separation where people who don't want these things deal only with financial institutions that don't have them. But I think in the cases of things that are universally abhorred,
like say child pornography, you will practically end up with something um, comprehensive that no banks will process payments for those people. And any bank that gets caught processing these payments will end up in, uh, in a lot of trouble with its customers. Safe. when you talk about the prices of Bitcoin, um, surely you have some kind of model you're focusing on or some framework. Um, could you maybe elaborate a little bit about that? Well, um, I'll say this. Initially, when I first got into Bitcoin, um, you know, once I went from being a small-ass skeptic who knew why it wouldn't work and started to consider the possibility that it might work, Immediately, there's a shift from smart-ass skeptic to um, complete bolt-out moon boy, you know? <laughs> All right, you go, well, once you've made that, you know, it's not like you go through shades of gray. You go from being Nouriel Rubini to being uh, um, parabolic trap or one of these most bullish people on Twitter where it's just, you know, moon, moon, moon tomorrow. Because once you think this is going to work, then it's only a matter of time before everybody else realizes that it's going to work. And one day we're going to wake up and everybody had realized that this, this is almost the image. You know, one day you, you go to sleep and there's a Bitcoin price and then you wake up the next morning and people realize that while you were asleep and now there's no more Bitcoin price and all of your dollars are worth zero and uh, Bitcoin is worth infinity. So this is kind of the pricing model that I began my uh, Bitcoin adventure with. Like once you think it's going to, once, once you think it's happening, then it's just going to shoot straight up to a zillion overnight. Um, and then, you know, you wake up the next morning and whoop, the dollar's still there. And then the next morning, yep, the dollar's still there. And then you start normalizing the fact that, hang on, maybe this dollar thing is not going to go away overnight. Um, and then, you know, you get, there was a book, there was a bear market. I bought at the top that there was a bear market for a couple of years. So then, you know, you start doubting whether this will actually work um, because, you know, people were getting it. They went from a dollar to a thousand in about a year. Um, you know, it's not that far of a distance to go from a thousand to 10 million. Um, should have just continued at the same rate. What the hell happened? Why did they stop? So then, you know, th then it becomes complicated. You have a little bit more of a uh, nuanced, perspective on it that, all right, maybe it'll take time. And this is when you start developing a more um, thoughtful idea about how it works. It, 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 it takes time for Bitcoin to propagate. And it's not, it's not like an app like WhatsApp or um, you know, any kind of uh, technology product that you have on your phone in that once somebody likes it, they just download it and they're using it. And so you know, these apps can go very viral very quick. So Instagram went from zero to a billion users or a few hundred million users in a very short period of time. So um, when you think about Bitcoin, it's not a new app. It's an upgrade on the old app that we have, which is money. So it's just a newer way of doing money. And upgrading money is much more complicated than just upgrading uh, one particular piece of software because money is one half of all of your transactions. Money is involved in everything. And so everybody has a cash balance and everybody has uh, accounts, various accounts in their, you know, their personal accounts as well as their business accounts that are all denominated in their local currency and probably some other currency, uh, you know, the dollar or whatever. So everybody's on a fiat standard and your balance sheet is on a fiat standard 
and all of your liabilities are in fiat and all of your assets are in fiat and all of your payroll is in fiat and all of your customers are paying you in fiat. So, and, and this is a running machine. So it's like you're trying to change the engine on the machine while the machine is running. So you have um, invoices coming in every day and you're making payments out every day and it's all in fiat. And you can't just stop the machine, replace the fiat with Bitcoin and then uh, deal with it because you still have to make all the payments and you don't want to turn out, turn away your customers and tell them, you know, you can only uh, pay me with Bitcoin. Um, they're used to it. You don't want to have to wait until they learn about Bitcoin. So you have to continue to use fiat, especially, you know, if you're running a profitable business, you don't want to mess with it. You don't want to mess with the success. Um, so you will continue to use fiat. But it's a, it's a gradual process of you switching your balance sheet into Bitcoin. And um, it happens... At, you know, different people do it at different rates, different uh, speeds, depending on their degree of conviction and depending on the amount of um, uh, spare cash they have lying around, depending on the risk they're willing to take and depending on their time horizon and how much they're willing to sit on it. So some people jump all in, some people uh, go in with the gradual amounts, some people who jump all in get wrecked and lose 80% over the next two years as happened with me, basically. And some people, well, but I didn't go all in, but I did, uh, you know, when you first go in, you have that. And some people jump in, go all in, and then get a 10x in a year. And so the uh, value goes up a lot. So, but but the overall trend is that what happens is that the value of cash balances in Bitcoin is increasing. So this is what we see. So this is what I uh, call, you know, the pricing model of number go up, which is, really a, a very powerful model for explaining Bitcoin because it says the price is likely to be higher in the future than it is today. And I think it's uh, it's a very strong model. I mean, jokingly, we call it number go up, but, uh, you know, my whole book can be summarized in those three words, you know, number go up, the Bitcoin standard. All of it explains why number go up is a feature of this uh, of this system. It's a it's an indispensable engineering feature of how Bitcoin functions. Number has to go up in order for Bitcoin to work. As I explained in uh, my book, and if Bitcoin works, then number has to go up. And, and basically, I think, you know, in the fiat standard, I clarified basically how I uh, arrive at the fact that number go up. I think ultimately we have a, the halving in Bitcoin, which means that every day, the number of Bitcoin being produced each day is going to be uh, at least it's going to be around one half of what it was four years earlier. So every day, look four years earlier, the number of Bitcoin that was being produced was double. So four years on, if Bitcoin continues to operate, that's all that Bitcoin needs to do is to continue to survive and for the inflation schedule to continue to hold, then we know that the new marginal supply being produced today, which today is around 900 coins, is going to be half of what it was four years ago. Four years ago, Bitcoin was making 1,800 coins. So if Bitcoin has survived for four years and its monetary policy is intact, A, the marginal supply is going to be half of what it was four years ago, and the marginal demand will almost certainly be higher because Bitcoin surviving four years means that uh, you know, uh, the people who heard about it four years ago are now more likely to put money into it. The people who put a little bit of money four years ago are more likely to put more money as it continues to survive, you know, Bitcoin at eight years is less of an investable asset than Bitcoin at 12 years. And Bitcoin at 16 is going to be 
more of an investable asset in Bitcoin at 20 and so on. So with every four years, you have more brand recognition, more safety track record, and therefore more, almost certainly more demand. So you would expect that you would see that the price has never gone down on a four-year scale. And in fact, if you look at the charts in the fiat standard, if you pre-order the fiat standard, you can see these charts, I think they're in chapter uh, 17 or 18. It's in the beginning of the last chapter, I think, which is 18. Um, you see that uh, if you look at the four-year performance, you know, the price four years, the price today compared to four years ago, the average has been over the past four or five years, the average is about 20 fold. So Bitcoin is usually 20 times higher than what it was four years ago. The, that value has never been under five. We've never had a uh, day, uh, except there was one day, actually, there was literally one day in which the value today on that day was less than five times higher than the value four years ago. One day in 2017, I think it was four times higher. It was 4.3 multi-times multiple. And only on 100 days was it less than uh, 10 times. So for practically the majority, the vast majority of Bitcoin's life, the price after four years is always around, is more than 10 times higher than what it was four years earlier. This is kind of always the case uh, with Bitcoin. It's never under five except for one day. So this for me suggests that, you know, the, there's something there that's going to drive the price up. So this would be my, this became my second price model. So the first price model is moon tomorrow. The second price model is number go up. But, you know, you remain agnostic about how much is going to go up, how fast it's going to go up. And uh, you never know. And you never rule out moon tomorrow. But then uh, this guy, Plan B, comes along. He has his model of Bitcoin valuation based on the stock to flow ratio. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that model. Yeah, that, that's worth looking into. So I've generally been pretty skeptical of statistical uh, mathematics and uh, of statistical economics, statistical analysis and economics. I studied this kind of stuff extensively in my PhD and came to the conclusion that the majority of economists are basically wasting their time doing regressions that tell us nothing about nothing. They're just uh, getting publications and uh, uh, you know wasting the world's time and resources on uh, papers that nobody reads. So I was naturally very skeptical when this uh, stock-to-flow model came about because I thought, you know, he's trying to predict the price based on the stock-to-flow ratio. And it's, uh, and, 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 you know, the idea behind that model came to him after he read my book. So he read my book and uh, that's when he came across stock to flow and then he thought to model it. So um, it's, it's not something that I had thought about because in my mind, you know, quantitative modeling is not going to tell us anything interesting more than what, uh, you know, qualitative analysis can uh, tell us. So analysis tells us stock to flow, the higher it is, the higher the price is going to be. Um, but I didn't think we'd have an, an, a relationship. And I immediately assumed if you did a relationship, it would be like almost every relationship we see in economics. All right, there's a correlation, um, but you know you probably need to over-specify the equation by adding several different factors in order to fit the data into the model and make it look robust and uh, not random. And most likely it will break down in a few days or weeks or months after trying to fit the data. 
So I was naturally skeptical of this, but then this guy has published his model. Um, it's now been two and a half years. And the model has performed incredibly well. I mean, I think uh, people are, uh, some people are being critical about of it now because uh, it's, it's a little bit off. But um, the thing that they miss is that this is a model that's looking at Bitcoin price going from under $1 to uh, 60000 so far. And it's predicting it all the way to uh, a million and so on. It's not likely to be very precise that we're going to have the same exact number. But we look at the error margins of error and we look at the relationship. We see that, A, it tells us very, uh, you know, it makes very clear falsifiable predictions. It says, you know, you're going to get a bump in the price after the halving and the price is going to go up significantly. And that's exactly what happened. So it was pretty astonishing for the first year after the model was there. The price spent the entire year oscillating around the model. So the, the model's prediction would have been around $8,000, $9,000. And then the one standard deviation area was basically the range of the price throughout that year was between about 4,000 and 14,000 or something like that. So the price was really within the one standard deviation. What the model is saying, what the, the one standard deviation tells us is that um, this is what you would, where you would expect to find 67% of the observations. And that's the one standard deviation. And then within the two standard deviations, you would find 95% of all observations. And so as long as we're getting 95% within that bond, within that uh, band around the price, the two standard deviations, as long as we're getting 95% of our observations in there, then the model is continuing to fail to be falsified. It's not being rejected. Once we spend a significant amount of time outside of those two standard deviation bands, then the model is rejected. So my initial intuition was that this model is going to be rejected very quickly, and I thought it was silly. And yet, the guy made a very precise prediction. You know, he drew the line and he said, this is where the price is going to go. And the price just continued to oscillate around it. So for the next year, from the publication of the model, the price was around the range. And then the model was predicted after the halving, the price would shoot up. And that's exactly what happened. The price started to go up right at the time that he expected it to, or a little bit later, a couple of months later. But it did go, and it, you know the model would have expected it to get to the point where it's in the range between fifty and uh, two hundred thousand, around one hundred thousand. So one hundred thousand is the prediction of the price for the next three years or so, and the range is between fifty and two hundred thousand. And again, this sounds like it's a big range, but it's really not. It's actually remarkably precise because Bitcoin could be anywhere between zero and ten million. $100 million. And yet, we're seeing this model pinpoint this exact area, this very tiny range around 100,000 is the place where the price is going to be, which it did in the previous cycle where it said it was somewhere around 9,000 or 100,000. So I think this, is, this correlation is too strong to be dismissed as curious. And I think, uh, you know, I can't dismiss it as spurious. And instead, I'm thinking of it in terms of what could explain this relationship? What could explain the fact that this is a market where anybody could buy and sell at any price that they want, and yet they continue to buy and sell within this range? And I think what it's telling us is that 
the start to flow is not just a qualitative metric in the sense of the higher it is, then the higher the price. I think it's what it's telling us is that it's a property of an economic good. Um, the percentage of its supply that is arriving from new producers versus from miners, effectively, versus the percentage of the supply on the market that is liquid but is being held by people, by holders. And the more that an asset is held by holders as opposed to, uh, the more that a market is dominated by holders, the more of a monetary asset this is. The more the market is dominated by miners, the more of a market commodity this is. And so what we're seeing is the transformation of Bitcoin into a monetary asset with the uh, stock to flow rising the amount of value that can be stored in Bitcoin is rising. I think this is really my model for explaining it. Imagine when Bitcoin had an inflation rate of 10%, when the money supply in Bitcoin was increasing at around 10%, which was the case in uh, 2013. In 2013, Bitcoin supply increased at around 10%. Imagine if in that world, Bitcoin had a market cap of $10 trillion. Uh, so the price of Bitcoin was around... Uh, half a million dollars. One Bitcoin was half a million and the total supply was worth around, what, probably a little more, say $600,000 per Bitcoin. And uh, the total market cap is around 10 trillion. That's a lot of money. Imagine 10 trillion, that would require that there's a new 10% of 10 trillion that's being added onto the market. So that's worth a trillion dollars. So not only would we need people to hold a trillion dollars of uh, Bitcoin, we'd also need a new $1 trillion to come in during this year in order to keep the price at that level. And so I think that's, that's really what the stock-to-flow model is showing us, that there is a, uh, there's a market reality that is enforced by the quantity of new supply in relation to the existing liquid stockpiles. And so... A good can't be good money when, and it can't be the world's monetary prime asset chosen on the free market if people have to suffer 10% inflation during that year, because that means you hold it and you're expecting to get diluted by 10% during a year. And so there's only so many people that are willing to hold on to a monetary asset like that. Plus, of course, you know, there's, uh, there's a limit to the fact that very few people have heard about it. So... On the one hand, you're getting more brand recognition and name recognition. But I think what this model is telling us is that it's really the stock to flow more than just time itself, because this model has been is outperforming a pure time model, which says that Bitcoin's price rises as a function of time. And this is outperforming it precisely because it has these jumps next to the halving where the stock to flow rises. So what this is telling us is that it's not time that's driving the Bitcoin price, it's the stock to flow, it's the real driver. And that's because the stock to flow um, changes the type of good. When you go from 10% inflation to 5% inflation, now suddenly you have a much bigger number of people that are willing to hold on to this asset because it's going to require less and it's going to result with, uh, it's going to come with less devaluation. So more people would be likely to hold it, but it seems there's a limit on how much money can be held. And I think it seems to be determined by the real market value of the daily reward. That's really what this model is telling us, that as Bitcoin's price goes up, 
Bitcoin becomes more inflationary. So right now we have 900 coins being produced. At a price of $1 million per Bitcoin today, we'd have $900 million worth of Bitcoin being produced every day. So if you wanted to maintain that price, not only do we have to have a lot of people holding on to, you know, we need $20 trillion worth of holders, we'd also need a new billion dollars every day to buy all the new Bitcoins. Eight years from now, we're not going to have 900 coins being produced every day. We're going to have 200 coins. So then at 200 coins, the price of 1 million becomes less absurd. If we're just producing 220 coins a day, then at a price of 1 million, that's only 220 new million dollars of money every day in order to maintain that price. So it seems that what this model is telling us is that there's some kind of range around which the price is going to oscillate with each cycle that's largely determined by the uh, inflation rate. So you can think of it as ninth, during the previous three years, uh, in the previous cycle, 9,000 to 10,000 was the predicted price. At, a, at an inflation rate of around 4%, that's how much the market could handle. At a 4% inflation rate, we had 1,800 coins a day. And so 1,800 coins a day at around $10,000 a coin is around $18 million a day. That's what Bitcoin could handle roughly around that range. So it could go up significantly. It could go up from 18 million for a few days during the peak of the bull market. It could go up to $100 million a day of new money coming in. The price goes up, but we can't maintain that money because, you know, leverage and people get wiped out and then the hype dies and people move on to other things. And so we're going to crash from 100 million. And also if it drops, you know, if the price drops at the bottom of the market where we drop to around, I think, 4,000. At 4,000, we have 1,800 coins at um, 4,000 each. That's about $7 million a day. That's kind of not a lot of money. So $7 million a day, when it gets to that point, you know, the price has dropped to the point where the new coins being produced are a small amount. So it's only $7 million a day. So then even at a small amount of demand for Bitcoin, there's enough demand to eat up all the coins that are being produced and then start the price rising again and bringing it close to the average. So it seems what this model is telling us is that the inflation rate is largely determining the market capitalization of Bitcoin. It's determining, through determining how much new supply is being produced, and therefore the market price multiplied by that supply gives us an idea about the new demand. And it's telling us that the new demand is kind of range-bound um by this so i think you know if you listen to this model if it continues what the model is basically saying is that we're going to be getting another 10x increase every four years so the price we add a zero to the price roughly every four years there's really no limit on how long it can continue because you know we could have a bitcoin that's worth 100 million dollars and still bitcoin be a pretty small money because there's no limit on how many dollars we can have. Remember, you know, we could have a world in which uh, the price of a Pepsi can or a can of Pepsi is a million dollars and a Bitcoin is a uh, billion dollars. We could, it, it's hard to disentangle the effect of inflation in the model. 
but uh, maybe maybe what it is telling us is that something about the price of Bitcoin is psychological that it's going to be, you know, the first bull market was around the 1,000 mark, the second one was around the 10,000 mark, and this third one, maybe we're going to 100,000. We'll see. But I think, uh, to be honest, I don't think I can dismiss this uh, stock to flow model. I, we've had the plan B on this podcast before. I'd urge you to go uh, listen to that. Uh, he's a very interesting uh, fellow. The fascinating thing is there are a lot of reasons why it should break down, and yet it doesn't. And that's really the interesting thing here. Um, so, yeah, theoretically, as inflation picks up, you'd expect the model maybe to break down to the upside, the price goes up even further, but it hasn't happened yet. In fact, what we've been seeing is, I mean, we looked like we were going to break to the upside a few months ago, um, but instead, and when I say break, you know, leave the one standard deviation band. But now we've left it to the downside, even with all of the inflation and stuff. So I think perhaps what it's, what it's saying here is that maybe it's not so much that the model matters um, in terms of market valuation, as much as it is about market psychology, it's just these big banner numbers of Bitcoin at a thousand, Bitcoin at a ten thousand, Bitcoin at a hundred thousand. A lot of people set their moon target at that. You know, when Bitcoin hits ten thousand, I'm going to sell and buy my car or buy a house or whatever, and that's when uh, the bubble bursts. Maybe that's what's happening. So that's likely to be immune to more inflation if we end up having faster inflation. Okay. What are your thoughts about CBDCs? Do you think they are sustainable? Do you think they are a threat to Bitcoin if central uh, banks issue their own cryptocurrencies? Um, what are your thoughts on them? Yeah, I think um, in theory, if central planning works, then central bank digital currencies should allow central planning to work much more efficiently. But in reality, because uh, central planning does not work, central bank digital currencies will allow it to fail more efficiently. So think about the example of the Soviet Union, where uh, essentially what the CBDs, uh, CBDCs are is just the Soviet Central Bank. You know, it's just being uh, paraded with all kinds of interesting uh, tech, techno babble. But what they're doing is just the same model as the Soviet Central Bank, the Goss Bank. There was one bank in the Soviet Union and everybody had an account with that bank. That bank knew everybody's money. And therefore that bank could manage the economy very efficiently and prevent recessions and prevent uh, evil capitalists from doing evil things that evil capitalists usually do. And so, of course, you know, um, if you read um, Soviet uh, economic textbooks or Soviet newspapers or Keynesian textbooks or Keynesian newspapers um, throughout the 20th century, all of these idiots believed that the Soviet Union was successfully planning their economy and that the Goss Bank was building a successful miracle. So famously, and I mentioned this in the Bitcoin Standard, Paul Samuelson, the, uh, the author of the most important fiat economics textbook that has been taught in most universities over the past 60, 70 years, Paul Samuelson in his textbook, he wrote the first edition in the 1950s and up until 1989 printing, 
you know, they kept, obviously university professors, they keep updating the same stupid textbook over and over again by changing a couple of numbers and then selling a new one with um, huge markups. As the versions were continuing to be published year after year, every time you would repeat the point that the Soviet economy shows that central planning works and that central planning is possible and that central planning is more efficient as a way of producing economic growth. And, you know, the usual stupid Keynesian viewpoint on this is that um, central planning is better for economic growth, but it's not good for uh, economic freedom and personal freedom. And that's why uh, Western economies, we don't want to try communism because communism, you know, it works economically, but it's bad for personal liberties. And that's why we don't want it because we're democracies. And so we're willing to go with the... uh, inefficient, inferior system of capitalism because we don't want to end up being a uh, dictatorship. This is the kind of uh, stupid propaganda that was taught in Keynesian text- textbooks, and this is what uh, people like Ross Samuelson were writing. Even up until 1989, when the Soviet Union was falling apart. So this is the kind of framework that wants to build CBDCs. They think when we have control over all the money in the economy, we make sure there won't be crises, there won't be problems, everybody will get their UBI, there won't be corruption with um, welfare, we'll know how everybody's getting all of their money efficiently, and therefore, everything would be fixed. You know, there won't be poverty and there won't be business cycles. We will just build the new grave economy, you know, the, the new neoliberal slash Keynesian slash Marxist uh, utopia of you will own nothing and you will be happy. Um, in that kind of world, I think these people have these ideas about how they are going to build this system. And they think that having the central bank digital currency will allow them to make it more efficient. But I think what makes an economic system function is not the efficiency of the central planners. It's the freedom of individuals to be able to transact as they see fit and to sell and buy things at their own valuation in particular, when it comes to capital ownership, it's the ability of capital owners to decide for themselves how they want to allocate and use their capital. That's what makes a capitalist system function. That's what makes economic production function. And anything else is not going to figure out how to produce and use capital efficiently. Because as, we, as I discussed in uh, Principles of Economics in my textbook and in the Bitcoin standard to some extent, um, in order to know how to allocate economic resources, you need calculation, you need economic calculation around those resources. And in order to calculate, in order for people to be able to make calculation, it has to be, it can't be a game, it can't be hypothetical calculation, it can't be uh, people guessing about the different valuations. It has to be people who own things making real life decisions about those things. It has to be real opportunity cost. The person making the decision about how to use it has to have, in order for them to be able to know the true cost, they have to be the one who's paying the full cost. And in order for them to, and they have to be the one who's accruing all of the benefits. If that's not the case, then you're not going to get economic calculation, basically. And so therefore you're not going to be able to have a large scale economy where economic production is coordinated uh, across, uh, you know, across society between strangers who don't need to, interact. They don't need to interact and uh, be directed 
this is how it works. The only way that a market economy can work is if every person is able to perform economic calculation around their purchasing decisions and their production decisions and their capital ownership. Without that, there is no economic calculation. So I think we'd be in for a terrible, terrible uh, world 